0: Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we bring you an intergenerational conversation between Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, a theoretical physicist, author, an activist who is one of the organizers of Particles for Justice, which organized the Strike for Black Lives, a collective effort in which scientists from across the United States and the world participated in following the police killing of George Floyd. She's also my daughter. On today's show, Chanda is in conversation with her grandmother, Selma James, a women's rights and anti-racist campaigner, author, and a founder of the Wages for Housework campaign. Some of you have heard Chanda on Sojourner Truth as part of our occasional series, Cosmology on Sojourner Truth. Salma James has long been on the Pacifica airwaves. Her interviews are part of the Pacifica radio archives. Her first appearance was on WBAI in the 1970s in New York City.
1: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. A Louisville Bank employee armed with an AR-15 opened fire at his workplace, killing five people and wounding at least nine others Monday. Louisville police say the suspect live-streamed the mass shooting and was killed by police who responded within minutes. Among the dead are Kentucky's Governor Andy Beshear's friends.
0: I'm hurt, and I'm hurting.
1: And I know so many people out there are as well. Police say they're still seeking a motive. Louisville mayor earlier yesterday called for greater actions to address gun violence and said he was a survivor of workplace violence. He also noted just blocks away two other people were shot in an unrelated incident of gun violence. The gun violence archives reports 150 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year. President Joe Biden doubled down his call for Congress to enact gun control in the wake of a mass shooting in Kentucky, White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre called on Republicans to have the courage to do the right thing: ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, to require safe storage of firearms, to require background checks for all gun sales, to eliminate gun manufacturers' immunity from liability. These are common sense actions we can, we can ask for and should be getting right now. We need to act and we need Republicans to show some courage. Every town for Gun Safety said on social media, Kentucky's gun laws are among the worst in the country and its gun death rate is among the highest. Some Democrats are calling on the Biden administration to declare a health emergency due to legal threats on abortion medication. Alex Gonzalez
0: reports. Massachusetts Representative Ayanna Presley has called on the president to declare a public health and national emergency in response to the ruling which she says will disproportionately impact black women.
2: As a black woman knowing full well the black maternal morbidity crisis that one in four black women die in childbirth or post birthing complications, this is a matter of life and death.
0: The CDC says black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related complications than white women. President Biden said the Texas ruling sets a dangerous precedent for other FDA approved drugs. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network
2: and Public News Service.
1: One of two black Democrats in Tennessee who were expelled last week from the Republican led State House for joining protesters demanding gun control on the House floor has been reinstated. Nashville's governing council voted unanimously Monday to send. Just Justin Jones back to the legislature, where he returned with supporters. Alex Gonzalez reports.
0: Democratic Representative Justin Jones rejoined protesters and marched back to the state Capitol in support of gun reform following the mass shooting at a private Christian school in Nashville that left six dead last month. I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The other lawmaker,
1: Justin Pearson, could be reappointed by the Shelby County Commission Wednesday. A group of lawyers for the two lawmakers, including former Attorney General Eric Holder under the Obama administration, has sent a letter to the state House speaker warning against unconstitutional retribution, stating the world is watching. American and Filipino military forces have launched their largest combat exercises in decades in Philippine waters Across the disputed South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, exacerbating tensions between the U.S. and China. The annual drills called Balakatan will run through most of the month and involve more than 17,000 military personnel. FSN's Peter Falk has more.
2: Involving more than 17,600 servicemen, the 38th Balakatan, meaning shoulder-to-shoulder exercises, are designed to enhance the interoperability of the two militaries in areas including live firing and maritime security. They kick off just a day after Beijing concluded three days of drills around Taiwan in retaliation to a meeting between Taiwanese leader Taing Wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Those already resulted in heightened tensions in the region. Meanwhile, the Philippines president has assured China the four military bases Manila recently granted the U.S. access to will not be used in any offensive action. Ferdinand Marcos, Jr. says the arrangement is designed to boost the Philippines' defences. Three face north towards Taiwan, while the other faces the disputed Spratly Islands, where China has built artificial islands with runways and missile systems. Patrick Falk. Singapore.
1: Protests in the Philippines and the U.S. against the increased militarization of the small island nation. Actions were held in New York Sunday and in the San Francisco Bay Area Monday. I'm Christina Honested reporting for Pacifica Radio.
0: Those were today's news headlines. Dr. Chanda Weinstein is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and Core Faculty in Women's and Gender Studies at the University of New Hampshire. Her research in theoretical physics focuses on cosmology, neutron stars, and dark matter. She additionally does research in black feminist science, technology, and society studies. Dr. Prescott Weinstein is also a columnist for New Scientists and Physics World. Nature recognized her as one of 10 people who shaped science in 2020, and Essence Magazine has recognized her as one of 15 black women who are paving the way in STEM and breaking barriers. Co-founder of Particles for Justice, she received the 2017 LGBT Physics Acknowledgement of Excellence Award for her contributions to improving conditions for marginalized people in physics, and the 2021 American Physical Society Edward A. Boucher Award for her contributions to particle cosmology, including her first book, the Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space, Time, and Dreams Deferred received the 2021 Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology category and was named a Best Book of 2021 by publishers Weekly, Smithsonian Magazine, and Kirkus. It has been a finalist for several awards, including the 2022 PEN E. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. The Disordered Cosmos was also long listed for the OCM Bocas Prize in Caribbean Literature. Originally from East Los Angeles, specifically from El Sereno, she is a graduate of the Los Angeles Public School System, Harvard University, and received her her master's at UC Santa Cruz and her PhD from the Perimeter Institute. Salma James is a women's rights and anti-racist campaigner and author. From 1958 to 1962, she worked with her husband, CLR James, in the movement for West Indian, known as Caribbean Federation and Independent. In 1972, she founded the International Wages for Housework Campaign and in 2000, helped launch and is the international coordinator of the global women's strike whose strategy for change is invest in caring not killing She coined the word unwaged, which has since entered the English language. She is part of the Global Women's Strike Working Group on Haiti and was a founding member of the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network. She is the author of several books, including Sex, Race, and Class, and her latest book an anthology of her work is entitled Our Time is Now. Her other publications include Sex, Race, and Class, The Perspective, The Ladies and the Mammies, Jean Austin and Jean Reese, Strangers and Sisters, Women, Race, and Immigration, and she edited Jailhouse Lawyers and *Ujamaa: The Hidden Story of Tanzania's Socialist Villages. We will now go to Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein in conversation with Selma James.
3: We're here to talk about Our time is now. Sex, race, class, and caring for people and planet. One of the things that really jumped out to me about what is it that this book can say to the generation of organizers that's coming up right now is particularly the thinking and theorizing that you do around the idea of autonomy. I think that autonomy is super powerful and it's not in the vocabulary of the organizing work that we have been doing among younger generation folks. So I'm wondering if you can start by sharing your working definition of what is autonomy and how do you see autonomy at work in the work that you've been doing, whether you're thinking about autonomy has changed through the decades as well, and how that shapes the choices that you're making in the way that you're organizing works.
4: That's a really good and important question to us, not so much to theorize as to work out how in practice we can get on, because it's perfectly obvious that people want to discuss and want to organize around the particular persecution, exploitation, etc., that they suffer. The question is, how do you organize with others who have their own agenda? And in a way, that fortifies you, but also fortifies them. We saw what we were doing as any particular sector as tremendously important, not only to us, but to every other sector we were organizing with. At the same time, we set the agenda for our sector, while others set the agenda for their sectors, and we worked together on that basis to make a total thing that the whole organization stood for. Luckily for us, the second organization that came to be autonomous within the Wages for Housework campaign, while Black women for Wages for Housework, who had exactly the same restrictions, if you can call them that, but rules, really, and which they found useful to them because they could teach the rest of the women who were mainly white, not only but mainly, what racism was in an ongoing way. So they recognized it and stamped on it. And at the same time, some of the women who were black were lesbian, and they wanted to be part of Wages Due Lesbians, as it was then. And uh, they changed the nature of the lesbian organization and changed the nature of the whole Campaign, And that's what we began to understand. You know, we weren't going for a theory. We were going to make it work. And what we found out was that we were enhanced by the work with other women. Every single person, let alone a group who came into the campaign, changed the nature of the campaign because they brought their own experience, they brought their own language, they brought their own way of relating, and they brought their own connection with the movement that had been formed in the world outside on the basis of their sector, which they were part of, as well as being part of us. That's how we proceeded. After that, there was the English collective of prostitutes, they said, we want an an autonomous organization within the campaign. And again, there was cross-pollination and there was an enhancement of what all of us stood for and understood and comprehended as part of the work that we all were doing, led by
3: different sectors of women. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think like one of the questions that I can imagine might be coming up for some of the younger organizers who are listening right now is what does this mean in practice for when there's conflict? when you've been thinking about autonomy in terms of international network and connections as well. So when there's conflict and a need for dialogue and understanding, what does that mean in practice? And maybe before you answer, I'll just say like in context, the way that I'm thinking about this is that a lot of, I think the difficulty we see happening in movement organizing today is around people struggling to understand the politics of their identity and how the politics of their identity overlaps with other people's identities. And that we, we really have difficulty in this moment of people sometimes also mistaking their identities for a politics as opposed to a starting point for, for, for developing one. And I think that um, there's conflict that's maybe inherent to that process. But I also think that there are bad actors who encourage conflict to occur through that process because it's very divisive. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how you all have navigated that and, and, and maybe, you know, how, where in the book people should be looking also for, for guidance on that.
4: In the book, there's a whole section devoted to autonomy and this whole process has gone into. But, you know, What's astonishing is that when you organize for women and men to be together on the basis of what they have in common and incorporate what they don't have in common into what they see as their job and see as their parameters, you have not a lot of conflict because you are not in competition. That's the what the lesson we learned was we got on much better as a result of autonomy, than we would have got on if we were not autonomous from each other. And if we had been all in the same sector because we had would have bumped against other sectors in the world generally, We would not have been prepared and open and able to comprehend what we were experiencing, which the campaign, because it meant other sectors were together, had understood and made it accessible to us. Now, you're right. There are some people who come into an organization because, number one, they think this is the way to the top. all they need to do is capture this organization and they can get, you know, on the local council, even to be a member of parliament, to get a good job, to have a better rep, all kinds of things. We become experts in those opportunists. We begin to smell them so easily. And in any sector, you know, because we say, did you see that, you know, uh, it, it's very clear people who are not in the movement to change the world, but to change their status, they seem to scream their motivation out in ways that if you're experienced, you can pick them up in about three minutes. You know, you begin when you are not in a ghetto, when you have the advantage of your autonomy, but at the same time, you have access to the autonomous views of others who are available to you to answer your questions and, and to argue with you to get it right. You know, you are a much wiser operator in the world generally, and you become open to the world in ways that you would not have been if you had not been in an organization of sectors other than your own. Once the ECP had come in and Black Women for Wages for Housework had come in and Wages to Lesbians had come in then women with disabilities wanted an organization. And that was very trying. We had to find out how to work that organization. But all the principles were laid out already. And it really always meant, um, I, I have to be absolutely straight with this, it always meant an expansion of our understanding and an expansion of how we thought about our own sector, because you could see the same kind of manipulation of your sector in other people's sectors and say, oh, yes, I know that. I've been through that. This and this is what it means, and we won't have that. What we would like is this, that, and the other. It was a learning process and we never lost from it. We always gained from it. We always gained understanding, perception, and first of all, perception of our own sectors.
3: The, the start of your comments had me thinking I think I would be remiss without mentioning the, the introduction that my mother Margaret Prescott wrote for the book. And she has this line, personal ambition as a political force from which we must protect our movements is a constant preoccupation that our network was trained to recognize and reject whenever and wherever it appears. So I think that's maybe a summation of, of, of some of what you're talking about there. Yes, it and, is. And it, it's exactly what I meant. And thinking about You know, some of the other issues that my mom raises in the introduction, of course, is as a Caribbean woman, as a Bajan woman in particular, my mom is particularly concerned with how you think with and through and have organized with Caribbean folks and Caribbean women. Part of what jumped out to me, she writes about your work with Ndaye and also with students in Haiti and your time in Trinidad. Part of what's interesting to me about my experience growing up in the campaign was that you just talked a lot about learning in your last answer. You used the word learning a lot. And I came out of that with a very clear understanding that if you're doing organizing work, that you're constantly doing self-education and needing to learn more, that you can't rest on your laurels and say, I understand the movement, I understand the problems... And so I remember reading groups. I remember people coming together to read um, important texts to learn from writing that people were doing around the world. So I was wondering if you could talk about that process? Because I think some of that, it, you see it in the book, but I don't know if there's really a moment where you say, yes, we were reading together and we were talking about what we read. So I wonder if you could say more about, about that process within your organizing work. Well,
4: first of all, day was really a great woman for us and has left us the legacy of a wonderful book of her, uh, an anthology of her work. That she barely finished before she died. It was really a gift to the movement, and I do recommend anyone who is interested in our work to have a look also at what Andai put into the point is to change the world. You know, that's a saying from Marx. He said, The philosophers have described the world in many ways. The point, however, is to change it. And she took that as the basis of her thing. I learned in Trinidad that the United States was not the limit of the world, nor was the UK. I learned that the world was not only bigger than that, but had much to tell all of us from every corner. I loved Trinidad. I became a Trinidad. My husband said that I was more Trinidadian than he was, you know, because I was so hooked on the music and hooked on the cleverness of the women and how they organized with little. And it gives you a a clue about how most of the world is. It's not all like Trinidad. Some of it is much poorer than Trinidad, but it is all part of what we call the Global South, which means it was fundamentally not the industrial world, but the agricultural world. And that was another world which I was glad to know about and to learn a little bit about, because you don't don't understand everything in the five years that you're busy trying to build a movement. You need more time than that. And I've been back since I know more about West Indians in the UK, etc. But I think that you understand that there is no way that you're going to be able to build any movement in the US or any movement in the UK or any movement even in Europe, unless the whole world is involved. You need the rest of the world and they need you. And you have to find out what it is you need to be demanding together, what you need to be saying, what you need to be talking about to women in the non-industrial world who not only cook the food that they feed their families, but first they grow it. And what that means, what kind of a life that is, what kind of struggles they have and how they have had to fight the multinationals and how they have had to fight other forms of imperialism and how often they have had to leave country and become immigrants in another place. And that's what we need. That's the information that we can thrive on and build on and understand what the questions are for all of us everywhere because we're together in the most rudimentary way, but because we're not living together, but we are in touch. We are in communication. We are on the same side. We are struggling. We are all
3: anti-capitalists. We are all ready to save the planet and to work for it. I'm thinking about organizing stories as a series and the context in which it exists and we're doing this event, right? And so I think part of, part of the brilliance of what Monica and, and Autumn have done here is to take the resources of this institution, Princeton University, um, that's financially rooted in slavery and colonialism and continues to educate basically the ruling class. Whether the students are, are um, ruling class when they arrive, um, those of us who are admitted to institutions, and I say this as someone who went to Harvard with Monica, um, were brought in on the understanding that we will be trained to join join the ruling class. And so I think part of the, the strength of this series is, is an offering an alternative to the students and making it publicly available of saying how to think about your position and your social location. Um, and so, you know, in connection with that, the organizing for the Wages for Housework campaign that's, that's been central has been um, class-focused, right, and working-class focused. And we can see how the entry point to women's issues is very different when you come in thinking from working-class and Black working-class women's issues than if you're coming in and thinking from middle-class and, and professional women's issues, And that that often, in fact, what we see is that the middle class and professional class women are working in opposition. And so I'm wondering what you would say to, say, you know, an 18 and 19 year old Princeton student who is aware of this dynamic. And is maybe even trained in it in their family, in their household, or is coming out of a household where they weren't trained in it and are now in an environment that's pressuring them to see themselves in that tradition. How do they locate themselves in relation to the movement? How do they relate to the movement while existing, given what space that they are in? I think we have to spend
4: our time or a lot of our time finding out the struggles of the grassroots everywhere, wherever we can and wherever we can be in touch with it. And we have to identify with those struggles and find our place within them. I think you raised a central question for us now, since so many of us have made it out of the working class and are en route to the elite at the top, in one form or another, do we want to go there? Is that what we build the movement for? Many of us would say, no, as you have said, we want to build a movement to change the world for everyone, but from the bottom up. And we want to struggle against those women who have joined the establishment and who have not changed the establishment by joining it. Whatever their race, whatever their age, whatever their sexual orientation, they have become the enemy of women and who really, They're used to hide what is happening to us down here and make believe that women are just doing grand because they, a few of them, are doing grand. And there are not that few. There are quite a number of jobs for ambitious women to escape the trials and tribulations. And first of all, Poverty that has been the lot of women internationally. And I think that one of the great victories, one of the great acquisitions, I should say, of the Wages for Housework campaign has been precisely on the one hand to keep our eyes on the prize that is on the grassroots and on the struggles that those of us at the bottom are making, on the one hand, and on the other hand to fish out the few who might have gone up and remember something of where they came from and see how much we can get from them, how much we can convince them to work with us and for us. And I think that's because, you know, wages for housework is a political perspective against the poverty and dependence of women internationally. And that should matter to some of those women who remember how hard their mothers worked, if even they're working less hard themselves, and who might want to say, well, yes, I think there's a place for this. I can see I can be useful here. And I can see that there's something for me in trying to destroy the poverty of women generally, because that would change the world, including for me.
0: This is Margaret Prescott, host
4: of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take
0: a quick station break. When we return, you will hear more from Selma James and Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein in conversation. is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you are on Facebook, you can look for us there. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott on Twitter and Instagram. Follow our handle at sotrueradio. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of New Hampshire and internationally, our SoundCloud listeners in the Caribbean region. We now turn our attention back to Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein in conversation with Selma James.
4: That's what we're open for. That's what we want to do. That's what we, we offer to students who would like to move up. Sure, why not? Why shouldn't they? But who take with us, moving up the rest of us in what we do and how we relate and how we understand our own and their struggles.
3: I actually think, you know, this is connected to my attempts. I guess the way that this is percolating in my mind is this connects to my attempts to explain to my colleagues that when we talk about issues of childcare and family needs in the professional workplace, that there's a lot of conversation among professionalized women about the need for affordable childcare. And there is, I think, if I'm being generous, a difficulty in understanding that there are also women whose I'm going to put this in air quotes, their profession is childcare for their own children, right? That, that taking care of your own children is, in fact, work with psychosocial, economic, fiscal, all of the different types of value that we, we traffic in. Um, And in helping them understand that if we're going to talk about childcare, if we're going to talk about affordable childcare, it can't be like, oh, I need access to like a cheap immigrant woman who can live in my house. Um, So really what I need is a higher income for me so I can buy a big enough house so that they have a room where then I don't pay them very much to raise my child while I go and, and pursue my, my personal ambitions. In the book, you critique the term industrialized child care. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that dynamic around care and child care. Maybe you could start um, by, by explaining what you think care is, how you envision what that word means and how we should be using it. Care is a relationship. Care is not a thing. It's not a job. It can
4: be all of those things. But the care we're talking about, the care that we want acknowledged, the care that we want to be supported is the care of the relationship. We think of the other person, the needs of the other person as primary with what we should be doing. And every mother knows that, every mother. And I believe some fathers by now know that also. But the mother looks at the child, the infant, the person who has just entered the world and says, what does my baby need? And anything he or she needs, I must get it for them. And I, if this, so many women want to breastfeed, for example, because it's the best food for the child. And they can't because they have to be back at work in three weeks' time or however many time, and then they they have to stop and go back to the bottle. But what we think and what we know as human beings and what we know as the friends of the natural world is that we want to be caring people, and we want people to be caring for us as well. It's not a one-way road. It's, it's, it is everything, and it, is got, it has got to be the beginning of what the economy is about. It's got to be the beginning of what our relationships are about and our institutions. What is education but the but a relationship of information between people among people in all kinds of ways that we may devise. It's this caring that is central to what women contribute as a political perspective. We get little or nothing for it. The important thing is not only that it's low paid and unwaged, but that it doesn't matter in the society. It can be dismissed in this society as if it is nothing at all. Whereas in fact, it is the basis of living and of the planet. And that's really why we don't only speak about wages for housework after 50 years and 50 years it's a long time to be speaking about anything and be happy with it but we say we want a care income and we want that income Not be, in my view, not because the work should be paid, but the work should be able to be done without having going scratching around for another job. And that's all over the world. The income for women and men who want to care, not only for people, but for the planet, finally, the agriculturist who's been trying to feed her family on a small piece of soil and who has trouble getting water and fetching wood and all the rest. It is the care income, it seems to us, is based on a civilizing view of humanity and of the planet that we enjoy ourselves and each other in the cost of doing the best we can for them and for ourselves as well. So that's where we've reached. And I think it's the basis looking at the world, especially our people in Thailand and in other places, in also in Ireland and in Peru among domestic workers, wherever we have you know, people who are working. Within the global women's strike, which we call it now, they are working out how much they need to be supported by the society for the work that they are doing, which is on the basis of helping others. And in the course of that, helping yourself to
3: change the world as well. I have one last question. Some of the discussion about where women can be, what women should be doing, what women should get paid to do, is tied to contested ideas about what a woman is. And that sometimes what people are chafing against when they say, actually, I wanna be in the the professional workspace and not at home doing caring work, is that they're chafing against being defined um, in in a gendered way. And and so I'm I'm wondering, particularly in this political moment, both in the UK and the United States, there have been so many attacks on trans women and more broadly on trans people, including non-binary people. And I'm wondering how you engaging in defense of of those particularly marginalized and disempowered communities is shifting or contributing to the way that you're thinking about things. I know you're turning 92 this year, and also you're a lifelong learner. And so I know that this is something that you're starting to think more about. So I was wondering if if you wanted to to maybe share how it's shifting your thinking. I think that whoever wants to be another gender
4: to define himself, herself, themselves in another way. It's entirely up to them. It's their life and they should be allowed to get on with it. But I do believe that there are questions of identity which really undermine us. And one of them is that if you're a carer, you're a lower form of life. Let's face it, That's why, you know, people, you know, the government is talking about parents, not mothers. Excuse me, I'm quite happy to be a mother and a grandmother, I might add. And I don't think that it demeans me to be a carer. I think it elevates me, and I demand money to show that the society backs what I am doing as the central work of that society and refuse to be reduced by the definitions that people who make war can make a decision on who I am and what is its value. You know, there's a war going on. We have nothing to do with this war. And they talk about it as though it's the first war they've had since 1945. They forget the Vietnam War. They forget the war in Iraq. They forget the war in Iran. They forget the war in Syria. They forget the bombs that fall on Gaza from time to time with the Israeli bombardment. We have been in a war situation constantly, and loss of life could never have happened if the society was based not on killing but on caring, which happens to be, by the way, a close slogan which we use. Invest in caring, not killing. It has saved us in good stead and has helped us to to develop the men's organization that we work with named Payday. Your dad is a very good member of that and knows a great deal about how many people they have been able to help who are prisoners and who are refusing to go to war, etc. So one of the things that we've talked about
2: in organizing stories is the stories that make organizing possible. And I think some of what you both have offered today, is some ways into thinking about expansively, more expansively about the stories that society tells versus the stories that movements can tell about how to bring um, various peoples together. And Chanda, your, your first question about autonomy is like one of the ones that I had scribbled on my book to ask, so I'm really happy to have heard that conversation. But the question that I have is, in thinking about stories, you know, one of the things that is most complicated, I think, is how people think about their stories about themselves with the stories about the world, right? And so like your really sort of, Selma, like your really subtle understanding of what autonomy is actually I think gets at how interrelated way of thinking about what people think are three different stories, right? They think that the story about themselves and the story about the world and the story about other people are different, but your sense of autonomy sounds actually like you can manage all of those stories inside of a sense of autonomy. And so I wonder if you can say like even more about, that's a lot of, it's like a lot of emotional management, right? To like understand autonomy that expansively and to not feel threatened by other interests or different interests or ways that you haven't thought yet, right? So like being learning oriented at the same time as having a sense of autonomy, like that is a lot of balancing and that's a lot of emotional balancing and it's a lot of centeredness in that openness. So I just wonder if you can say more about autonomy and how that's like, it's a management as much as it's a steady ground, but it's also moving, or it sounds like it's also always moving.
4: It's an education. It's an understanding. It's a way of relating to others, which is more inclusive, including, including you, in the sense that you are Many people, each of us is, and as we develop our own autonomy and others around us develop theirs, we understand them and they understand us and we understand ourselves. We are trained, however, from the first day that we go to school to be in competition with every other little girl and boy who's going to to make it, they're going to make it and we have to compete with them. We don't want to do that to our children and we don't want to do that to ourselves. We want a collective view. We want our own individuality, but we want to see the individuality of others and learn from it and embrace it. And not compete. So it's anti-capitalist. It's not the way we're trained. We, you know, our mothers give us two information. Number one, make it. Another, number two, don't make it. You know, in a way, they don't want us to compete. On the, on one hand, and on the other. They feel that if we don't compete, we might be left and not do as well as we should. We have to really change our view and the movement, the getting together, especially across sectors and nationalities, is the way to develop an entirely different way of being in the course of struggling for change. And I think that women have great capacity to organize because that's what housework is. Housework is organizing. It's not only organizing, but it is that as well. And we have to learn how to transform that organizing into struggles that incorporate and that bring together and that make sure that the caring, That we give is caring that we also receive. I think we learn a lot uh, about the ways in which our movement is infiltrated by people who don't care about the movement, but only themselves, or who are working with other forces outside um, against us, and we have to fight it out in our own movement so that that clearly represents who we are and what we want to achieve and how we can get together to do that. Uh, I don't know if that's useful to you. I've always found that's a good way to approach it. Chanda, there's a question for you,
3: a couple questions for you around this to say more about Particles for Justice and particularly the way that you have navigated your relationship between the academy and community activism. And I think this is one of the, you started to touch on this a bit when you were talking about how, how we come into the academy and how we come out of it. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. I guess the first thing that comes to mind actually is the reason that we called the Strike for Black Lives, a Strike for Black Lives, which was it it was a callback for me to the global women's strike. That was actually like I had this understanding. And and I should say the global women's strike, the first one was in 2000. And so that was the spring of my first year of college. So I was already out of the house by then. And so that's actually an organizing process that I didn't witness from the inside the way that I had witnessed a, a lot of other things. That was a callback, including actually coming from you know my father, Sam Weinstein, who I think is somewhere in here also, was a organizer in the trade union movement. And so I had an understanding of how unions formally define strike. And I've actually been an officer in UAW 2865, which represents academic student employees at the University of California. And so I know also that we have to be careful about that word and that there were risks with using the word strike with people who were employed at institutions where that word might trigger something specific. And I pushed for us to use that word anyway, because I thought it was important for us to challenge that kind of rule setting that unions have been somewhat legally forced to but have also willingly engaged in with employers around who gets to strike and when and is any and when whether you're allowed to strike like at, at Uaw 2865 we actually were not allowed to strike per our union contract right and so calling for the strike was in some sense a transgression and it was very much inspired by by the global women's strike, I want to turn this and just say that also, you know, one of the things that I grew up watching was my mom doing her organizing work with with welfare mothers and um, mothers whose children had been taken into care basically because of crimes of, of of poverty. And so, I'm wondering also maybe, and I think that all of that, I was watching all of that, and in in the ways that I can applying that to. The problems I see us confronting in academic spaces, including the way that we pay poverty wages to graduate students, right? This is something my, my department has to hear me talk about this every week in faculty meetings, the poverty wages of the graduate students. So Salma, I'm wondering if you could talk about how organizing around welfare rights played a role in Wages for Housework and in in its current form in, in the global women's strike as well?
4: Well, I think that the welfare movement in the United States, and there were similar movements elsewhere, but none as strong, which was led by Black mothers, mostly single mothers, although it was a multiracial movement, in fact, has been one of the great women's movements in the United States, which was neglected because it was for money and because it was Black women leading it, it was never officially referred to as a women's movement. And we can't allow that to happen anywhere in the world where, where a movement of one race or another is not part of the way that we judge all our relationships. It was a piece of racism on the part of the white women's movement, which has not been gone through yet. But I must say that the legacy has been very good in many respects. Not only did they do wonderful work, which Margaret was very much involved in helping to happen, But there's a woman like Gwen Moore, who's a member of Congress, who has been talking about redefining work to include students, but certainly to include caring work, you know, and she is determined that we get some money for that work. She's a member of Congress. You see, you can go up and once you hit that top spot, you turn around and say, now let's go and get it. And that's what Gwen and some others have done. And it was the women's movement, the women's welfare movement, which helped to educate her and to define her work. I I think this is really crucial. Now, there was a um, single mothers in the UK also organized and helped us because when the government decided in its wisdom to take family allowance away from women, We organized the equivalent of welfare mothers, single mothers in this country, and all kinds of mothers who said, this is the only money we can call our own. That was in 1972, when women didn't go out to work all the time. And we defeated the government within months because the women said, I must have this money. I will not let them take it back from us. And we have had a lot of trouble even with the CTC, the, the, um, the money that Biden had in his special um, dispensation for, uh, for families. And um, we had a lot of trouble putting forward the view that if there is money for mothers or at least to feed children, that it's mothers who must get that money. And you couldn't get feminists to agree. It's as though good money makes women bad. I don't think so. I think good money makes women wonderful. And it means that our choices are greater our relationships are greater. Our social power is greater so we can say this is rape and I don't want it to defined in any other way but putting the man aside out, out of the way, out of homes, way where women are concerned. And I, I think there is some idea that if women are paid for the caring work that we do, that it will not be good for society. On the contrary, it would be great.
3: Thank you so much. I wonder if we can just have one final question that was really great from Rosalind Jones. And she's asking, Selma, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself as it relates to organizing? And I think that might be a lovely place to punctuate our conversation.
4: You know what? i do it again. <laughs> um, I'm very keen, as an individual, I'm very keen on what Marx called self-consciousness. That is, that as you develop the movement and as the movement grows, you become much more aware, self-conscious, in the sense you're conscious of yourself in the society and you're looking at other people. And I feel that the best way to raise your self-consciousness is in the movement for change, the movement against war, the movement against racism. And I have to add, because there are about 100 women from mainly Africa, but in other countries who meet at our center in London to fight deportations. It is our move against deportation And for our children, wherever we've had to leave them behind to join us. By the way, I have to say one other thing. And that is, we did some work for some months for a year-long strike that agricultural workers and farmers waged millions and millions of people. And we discovered A movement in one state, in Andhra Pradesh, but it really is also in other states, of a million women in self-help groups who are transforming agriculture, who are making it possible to have not merely organic food, but natural grown food. Community managed agriculture, common natural agriculture, and the difference in the food that is being eaten, and the difference in the climate, in the ability to begin, to begin to end global warming is in their hands there, and we are pursuing it. And we're really going through with places in Africa and Latin America, and in in other parts of the world where women and men are changing the way they do agriculture and are refusing to poison the soil, refusing Monsanto and beginning to take the soil that is the source of all our good food into their own hands. There's a great struggle going on, which we can tell you more about at another time.
0: We're out of time. I'd like to thank the organizers of the conversation between Chanda, Prescott Weinstein, and Selma James at Yale University's Speaker Series. Today's show edited by Sojourner Truth assistant producer Alicia Vargas. We would like to thank her as well as today's board engineer, Gary Baca. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Stay well and safe. Thank you for listening.